You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. History throughout the ages tells us that a horse was more than just a ride. Horses were loyal companions who accompanied their masters to fight heroic battles, to save them from any enemy attacks, to carry messages and supplies. Matter of fact, the earliest evidence of horses ridden in warfare dates from Eurasia between 4,000 and 3,000 B.C., from pulling chariots to hauling supplies to carrying these mighty heroes in battle. These horses, these war horses, were considered the true heroes of war. They were mighty and swift, intuitive and well-trained, and they received the praise of men. History is filled with these stories. History tells us the stories like the horse Nelson, who was General George Washington's favorite war horse during the Revolutionary War. Described as a splendid charger, the animal stood 16 hands high. Nelson was chosen over General Washington's horse named Blueskin because Nelson was said to be less skittish during cannon fire and the startling sounds of battle. We hear stories of the horse named Traveler. Traveler was the war horse for the Confederate General Robert E. Lee during the American Civil War. It was due to this horse's popularity that Lee became a primary target of the enemy. Like an experienced Traveler, Traveler would go for days without exhaustion. He was a horse of great stamina. Eventually, During the second battle of Bull Run, Traveler got a bit nervous, retreated, stepped on a nail, and contacted tetanus. There's horses like Comanche. Comanche was a Mustang owned by the Army that survived General George Armstrong Custer's detachment of the U.S. 7th Cavalry in the Battle of Little Bighorn. In other words, Mustang was the only one left. And like and like like a famous war horse would... Eventually was wounded in battle, but when Comanche died, Comanche was given a special military funeral. Reckless. Reckless was a horse. Reckless was owned by the U.S. military as well. She's known as one of the bravest war horses in our country's history. In the Korean War, she covered, she carried supplies and weapons and evacuated wounded soldiers. Reckless achieved fame when she made 51 solo trips into the battlefield. In one single day. But due to her heroic deeds, she was seen as utterly famous, being chosen by Time or by Life magazine as one of the 100 all time heroes. Marengo. Marengo was a war horse that garnered his fame because he carried Napoleon Bonaparte during the famous Battle of Waterloo, before being killed by the British troops, Marengo galloped a 3,479-mile round trip from Paris to Moscow. Moscow. Today, the horse's skeleton stands tall in the National Army Museum in Chelsea. Then there's Chitok. And I don't know if that's how you pronounce this horse's name or not, but this courageous stallion has poems written in his name and was considered the savior of Maharana Patrak King of northwestern India in the late 1500s. This horse was the real hero of battle because this horse saved his master's life by taking over a mighty elephant 
the story goes that Tatak reared high in the air and planted his hooves in the forehead of the elephant. And in doing so, saved the master and received a fatal wound on one of his legs. But then there is a horse that all of the Jews would have known. The horse of Alexander the Great, Bucephalus. Matter of fact, Bucephalus was so famous that Bucephalus has a name, has a city named after him. This horse was known to be a mighty creature who fought many battles during Alexander's conquests. At the age of 13, Alexander required Bucephalus, or acquired Bucephalus, who immediately became his favorite companion, fought many battles. See, the Jews would have known of Bucephalus. The Jews would have known that great military leaders and great military commanders of old, for thousands of years, entered into cities on war horses. And as these Jews are standing around waving palm branches, which were in and of itself a call to war, shouting, liberate now. Jesus comes not on a war horse, but a peace donkey. The text reads this way in Luke 19, verse 28. When Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a young donkey tied there on which one has never sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as he told them as they were untying the young donkey. Its owner said to him, why are you untying the donkey? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their robes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. As he was going along, they were spreading their robes on the road. And now he came to the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice of all the miracles, for all the miracles they had seen. And the other gospel accounts say they're waving their palm branches and they're shouting, Hosanna, or as Luke would say, the King who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Hosanna means save now, deliver now, rescue now, or liberate now. And some of the Pharisees, and this is important to remember, Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to stop calling you king and tell them to stop talking about liberation. That's going to get us in trouble. And he said, look, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. As he approached and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept when he saw the city, saying, if you knew this day that would bring peace, but now is hidden from your eyes. If you weren't so blind, if you would just open your eyes, church, for the days will come on you when your enemies will build an embankment against you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone or another in you because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. You did not see. You didn't see. See, it was Passover. That's the context. Passover was the annual celebration of Israel's liberation 
from bondage in Egypt. And it was a holiday that had now developed strong patriotic overtones. Because not only did they, did they think through the liberation from Egypt, but now living under Roman occupation, they would remember during Passover the great liberation that Judas Maccabeus secured for them just two centuries before. Passover had become an Israel's Independence Day because they remembered the Maccabean Revolt when Judas the Hammer led a Jewish war of independence against the Seleucid Empire. And so with these patriotic overtones, it had become a festival that could spark an idea of freedom, an idea of revolution, and lead to riots, possibly a revolt like it had before, see. In Rome, then, knowing that this was the tendency, knowing the history needed to send an official there to keep things in order, what better official to send than the Roman governor Pontius Pilate himself, right? And he needed to be there to keep it in order. And he didn't live in Jerusalem. See, he lived on the seaside of the Mediterranean in a city named for Caesar called Caesarea. But the governor wasn't going to be allowed to stay in his seaside home. He was going to have to come to Jerusalem to oversee the festival and keep things in check. So on the day, when you read the story, on the day, Jesus comes to Jerusalem, the Roman governor comes to Jerusalem too. And Jesus rides into Jerusalem very different. But Pontius Pilate doesn't. He rides into Jerusalem on a war horse, just like the great leaders have done for thousands of years. Adorned in his uniform, he dresses like a man of status, riding on his horse, adorned with the garments of war. His presence is a sign of power. And in Jesus' day, as we have talked about, horses were meant for war. They were swift and strong. They were not beasts of burden. They were not animals of the field. Kings had hundreds, if not thousands. They weren't domestic like a donkey. And I bet to see the governor ride into town on his war horse accompanied by his soldiers was no doubt a glorious and awe-inspiring sight. And so the governor comes, and he enters Jerusalem riding a war horse. And the Jewish Messiah and promised king enters Jerusalem, the capital city, riding a donkey. And not just any donkey, not even a full-grown donkey. A young donkey, a colt, a domestic field animal. Let that contrast just for a minute. Do you see the contradiction? See, the Jews didn't see the contradiction. The Jews didn't see it. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on what we now call Palm Sunday is perplexing. It's an event filled with contradictions of great insight and great misunderstanding. There's jubilation, there's jubilation in this Passover as the pilgrims wave their palm branches as a call to arms, hoping that the miracle-wielding prophet from Galilee will turn into this long-awaited Messiah King who will once and for all liberate Israel from Roman occupation. And so they shout as He comes down, Liberate now! Save now! Now! And that's why the Pharisees said, Tell Him to shut up. Indeed, Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David, the long-awaited ruler of Israel and the fulfillment of God's promise. But the great misunderstanding is that he would enter Jerusalem and by his mighty works take his throne and make Israel free from Rome in a way far different than they thought. Jesus was going to bring liberation, all right. 
but not the kind of liberation that they expected. And Jesus is distressed by this. You ever noticed in the text? He's distressed by this. This is why our Lord Jesus weeps. While the crowd is joyfully shouting and cheering, Jesus is weeping with tears over Jerusalem. Quite clearly, Jesus doesn't share the optimistic enthusiasm of the crowd. Jesus doesn't share this violent nationalistic vision of Messiah that made it absolutely impossible for Jerusalem to see. To see the kind of things that really make for peace. See, despite their Palm Sunday cheers, the crowd ultimately failed to recognize the Prince of Peace as Israel's true Messiah King. And the tragic result, church, of this event is that 40 years later, they would get what they wanted, a revolt, a political revolution, except they would lose, and their temple would be destroyed, and thousands of lives will end. Just 40 years later, and Jesus, knowing they won't see today, he said, you don't see me in your visitation, knows that this is going to happen. Listen again to what Jesus says, verse 41, or as the text says, As Jesus approached and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you knew this day, what would bring peace? But now it's hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemy will build an embankment against you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in you, because you did not recognize, you did not recognize me. On the Sunday of Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, on a donkey, the crowd of Passover waves their palm branches and shouts, Hosanna, Hosanna, all blinded by a desire for freedom, believing that the only thing that could secure their freedom was another warlike deliverer like Moses or Joshua or David or better yet, Judas Maccabeus. But Jesus, this Galilean miracle-wielding prophet, messianic-like leader, was expected to lead another war of independence, and it wasn't going to be the one they wanted. See, their reading of Scripture was all jacked up. Their reading of the times was all jacked up. They were reading their Bibles wrong. They were reading their Bibles wrong. The, the scriptures that they used and that they proof texted to, to make them certain that the Messiah King was going to establish a kingdom that would lead to political revolution was a misreading of scriptures. The scriptures that they read that thought freedom and peace came through violence was a mixed reading of scriptures. The crowds want a repeat military performance, but Jesus is not coming as a Jewish hero of war riding on a war horse. He's coming as the Prince of Peace riding on a peace donkey. And so he sees this vision for the kingdom of God co-opted by this violent nationalistic agenda. And he says, if you would only see, if you would see, if you would see and believe in the possibility of a world-changing peace, if you would see that only the power of God can bring change to the world, but only through self-giving love, not through self-asserting love, he says to them, in a sense, if you would have known the words of Zechariah, which was the prophecy, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 through 10. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious. Humble and riding on a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed. 
It won't be bent back. It'll be removed. And he'll proclaim peace to the nations, wholeness, shalom, well-being to the nations. And his dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. If only they would have read their Bibles right. If only they'd have read their Bibles right and they would have heard Isaiah speak of the Messiah King in Isaiah 42, beginning verse 1, where the prophet says, This is my servant. I will strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring, say it with me, justice to the nations. And here's the beauty. He will not cry out or shout or make his voice heard in the streets. There's going to be no... He's just going to come in. And he will not break a bruised reed. Praise God for that. Or do we? Do we? He will not put out a smoldering wick. He will faithfully bring justice. He will not grow weak or be discouraged until he's established justice on the earth. The islands will wait for his instruction. If they would have only known that the Messiah King wasn't going to be a war hero coming in on a war horse. He was going to be the Prince of Peace coming in on a peace donkey. And that freedom and revolution in life isn't come through paths of violence. We think it does, just like the Jews thought it did. But did it? See, Jesus, I think... Is saying, if you would have just seen me. That's what he says. If you'd have seen me. If you'd have seen me, you might have understood my words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 through 9, when I said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. See, like the Jews, we often get confused about what kind of power can change the world. But Palm Sunday, with its mix of cheers and tears, reminds us of people saved by the gospel to turn toward the cross when thinking of power. We remember that on Thursday, our Lord, the Messiah King, the God-made flesh, was betrayed by one of his own and willingly and divinely surrendered to the arrest of the authorities. The Messiah King who came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey will stand trial with the governor who came riding in on a war horse. And so it makes sense then that he's the one arrested. And the crowd that shouted Hosanna will be the mob that eventually shouts crucify him. And they'll choose the freedom of a criminal murderer named Barabbas over the Prince of Peace and the freedom he would bring. And on Friday, the Messiah King will be put to death and executed on a cross. See, on Palm Sunday, we begin our journey of remembering how a different kind of power changed the world and how a different kind of power changed our lives. When thinking of power, we'll remember the cross. God does not love with a bullying love, and He does not want His love to produce more bullies. 
God is saving the world through King Jesus who established God's reign in the world through self-giving love. God reigns not by taking absolute control over everything, but by emptying himself and making himself vulnerable to save us. See, this is the kind of power that creates, redeems. This is the kind of power that restores and blesses and offers peace. And today, today, the Messiah King today comes riding into your life on a peace donkey, not on a war horse. And the absurdity is he asks you to jump on it with him. The world's always beckoning us to a war horse. That is not the way of the cross. See, it's important because God's people like the Jews still believe that the only thing that can change the world is violence, fear, and political revolution. And we hear it in the news and the debate stages and on the radio, and we talk about it at water coolers at work and in our homes. And we, we long for leaders who can ride into town on war horses shouting, liberate us, protect us, save us, preserve us. And we miss the one. We miss the one who comes in on a peace donkey. We miss the one who comes in on a peace donkey, the one called the Prince of Peace, the Alpha and Omega, the King of Kings, the Redeemer, and the Lord of Lords. And we forget that the cross is the sign of God's power. And we say, how can it be? How can it be that the cross can be the sign of God's power? Because on the cross, God said, give me all you got. Give me every bad thing you can bring. Put me on your worst instrument. Give me your worst violence. I'll withhold my power. And I'll let you give me everything I've got. And I'm going to show you that the best you have to offer is weak compared to me because I'm not going to stay dead because Easter's coming. And then the absurdity is he asked Christians to take up their cross too, but we can't carry a cross while we're riding a war horse, can we? We can't carry a cross if we're (laughs) waving palm branches for the war horse. It's hard to carry a cross that way. See, because Paul said that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who want to play according to the reign of sin and death, who want to play by those rules. Because it is, it's just dumb. But he says, but to those of us who are living according to the rules of the kingdom of God, to those of us who believe that love and joy and peace, and patience and kindness and goodness, And gentleness and faithfulness and self-control are the fruit of the Holy Spirit. For those of us who believe that, the cross has the power to save. And so what's interesting is Paul says, you know, we I know that this is foolishness, but we speak of wisdom, say it with me, among the mature though. Like there's got to be some mature folk in the people of God if they're going to get this. The mature folk got to get it. Because, because those of us, are, they're, some of us, we, 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 we have our eyes closed. And he's saying the mature people, the ones who are mature, who play according to the wisdom of the age that is and is to come, not the rulers of this age. Those rulers of this age are coming to nothing. So on the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. For our glory. Say, for our glory. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom because if they'd have known what they were doing when they were doing this, they'd have never done it. They'd have never done it. If they knew that God was going to take the worst that humanity had to offer and flip it on its head because he couldn't stay dead, they'd have never done it. That's what he means. 
They would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Because then they'd have nothing to threaten us with anymore. Oh my God, they'd have nothing to threaten us with anymore. Because we're people of resurrection. And we're people of resurrection only because we're first people of the cross. You can't get to the resurrection without the cross. Everybody wants to go to heaven when they die, but nobody wants to die. See, the kind of power that saves is the kind of power that gives birth to kindness, peacemaking, gentleness, extending mercy, giving grace, or, in a word, humility. That's why this kind of power saves. Because on the cross, that's what we see. So during Holy Week, we acknowledge that in a world of violence, Jesus' life and teaching may seem naive in the ways of the world, and as so might those who follow him and take him seriously. But we remember during Holy Week, that the moment the church exercises power apart from the story of Jesus and the cross, the moment that the church exercises power apart from self-giving love and attempts to manipulate or control or shortcut personal relationships or do the hard work of beloved community, that is the moment that the church is no longer demonstrating the power of God, but the power of himself. During Palm Sunday, we remember that the Messiah King comes riding into our lives, not on a war horse, but a peace donkey, and he tells us to join him and take up his cross and follow him too. During Holy Week, we come to Thursday, and we remember divine surrender, the day that God in the flesh willingly submitted his life to the fickle and comparatively weak created ones to offer all of us freedom. See, on Thursday, we remember when God whispered to us, I will allow you to break me so you can be made whole. I will allow you to revile me so you can be redeemed. I will allow you to reject me so you can be reconciled. I will allow you to kill me so you can have true life. I will allow you to hate me so you can know God's love. I will allow you to deny me so you can be accepted by God. I will be forsaken by God myself so you will never have to be. But only if we see. Only if we see. See, during Holy Week, we'll remember Friday and how in the cross, God speaks what is true for those who believe. And this spoken word comes with a promise and a summons. And see, it's the summons that we don't often like. See, what the cross speaks to us is that the world will change through cruciform love. That the world will change through a deep-seated trust in God. That the world will change when the people of God decide to embody the things of God that give birth to life rather than death. And that's the promise. The summons of the cross is that the people of God have to take up the cross and follow Jesus and trust Him and obey Him and trust God with the consequences. That's the summons. In the cross, God speaks what is true, and that truth becomes our way to freedom, if we'll believe. 
And then on Saturday, we remember the in-between. The in-between of sorrow and joy. The in-between of tears and cheers. Because on Saturday, we'll remember that Sunday is coming, but it's not here yet. So today, we begin Palm Sunday. And we see that the Roman governor rides in on a war horse of power and that the Messiah King comes riding in on a peace donkey that speaks to a different power. A real power. A power that is life-giving. A power that actually becomes beautiful. A power that invites the world to a different way of defining beauty and life and love. Oscar Romero, who was a priest and archbishop in El Salvador in the 60s and 70s, at a time of unspeakable upheaval when the streets of his beloved country were running red with blood. This man loved his country. He offered this word to the church. He said, death is the sign of sin, and sin produces death right in our midst. Violence, murder, torture, hacking with machetes, throwing into the sea, people discarded. All of this, he said, is the reign of hell. But then he said this. The Christian, though, the Christian wears the sureness of Christ and is the seed of salvation. The Christian is. If there is hope of a new world, of a new nation, of a more just order, this thing, this reflection of God's kingdom in our society, he says, brothers and sisters, surely you Christians are the one who will bring about this wonder of a new world. Surely you'll be the ones by how you love and how you see the world and how you think about the world and how you view the world and what you actually cheer for and what you weep over. Surely by that, you will bring in a wonder of the new world that has broken in and is to come. And he says, but only when we all are really communicators of the life that we come to receive in the Eucharist. Communicators of the seed that will transform the world communicators of the Messiah King who comes riding in not on a war horse but a peace donkey, communicators of the Prince of Peace, communicators of the Redeemer, communicators of the power that comes to us through the cross, communicators of a kind of freedom that is really free. See, my Chinese pastor brother right now who is worshiping in the dark under candlelight has told me before, that he is really, really free. My brothers and sisters all across the world who are worshiping under candlelight in fear of persecution where the Bible is illegal have told me, Pastor, we, we are free. Because they know the Prince of Peace. And every week we gather, we come to the table of grace to be reminded we are free. Because as the Bible says, if the Son has made you free, you are what? Free indeed. So come on Palm Sunday. Come and know that you're free. You're free from the fear-mongering. You're free from the power-mongering violence. You're free from believing that the world will change through anything other than the cross. You're free. And if for some reason it doesn't end well for you and me, <laughs> we're free. We're free. 
By the death and resurrection of Jesus, we're free.